Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast. I'm Craig Kringle. How many writers have given us timeless Christmas stories? Dickens wrote a Christmas Carol, of course, and a handful of other stories, some about ghosts and some just tearjerkers, but they're all wonderful. Clark Clement Moore wrote, "'Twas the night before Christmas," or maybe it was Henry Livingston. People are still arguing. Oh, Henry gave us the gift of the Magi. Christina Rossetti has In the Bleak Midwinter. Dr. Seuss has The Grinch. Dostoevsky, Hans Christian Andersen, L. Frank Baum, Louisa May Alcott, and the list goes on. But one master of Christmas poetry has been neglected, and it's time to set that right. It's a shame that masterpieces like his don't get recited every year. Here's one simply called Christmas. The cottage hearth beams warm and bright. The candles gaily glow. The stars emit a kinder light above the drifted snow. Down from the sky, a magic steals to glad the passing year. And belfries sing with joyous peals, for Christmas tide is here. So brief, yet so festive. Such humble, simple imagery. Hard to believe it was written by the same man who wrote this. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But someday the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. Yep, that's H.P. Lovecraft, the man who gave us Cthulhu, the man second only to Poe in the literary history of American horror, and the man who spawned countless bad squid and tentacle memes. But he actually wrote a lot of Christmas poetry. A lot. Most of it was nothing like what you might expect, and we're going to hear it all. Every last crappy little doggerel rhyme he penned. And I got help too, so you don't have to listen to me the whole time. In addition to a couple friends I know in actual real life, I threw out a request on Tumblr and Twitter for people to read his poems and one treat that'll come at the end, and I was thrilled at the response. I got more volunteers than I could use, and you guys rock. But let's get in the festive spirit. Most of them are little epigrams he wrote to stick on gifts or put in cards for his friends, and some of them are just cute little rhymes. As Christmas snows as yet a poet's trope, call back one's bygone days of youth and hope, Four metric lines I send. They're quite enough, though once I fancied I could write the stuff. Pretty nice, huh? Cute little touch of self-deprecation along with a moment of nostalgia. Light, fluffy verse. This one, too. As when a pigeon loosed in realms remote takes instant wing and seeks his native coat, so speed my blessings from a barbarous clime to thee and providence at Christmas time. That one's very Hallmark cardish. A bird sending you holiday greetings? Mm, fine. He certainly put more effort into what he wrote on that one card than I put into all the things I sent out through Shutterfly this year. Don't tell my wife. He really got into it, though, and he even wrote a couple of Christmas poems for his friend's cat. Yes, his friend's cat. We even know its name. Felis. And he went all out for the creature, even doing a little play on Blake's Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright. Little tiger, burning bright, with a subtle Blakeish light. Tell what visions have their home in those eyes of flame and chrome. Children vex thee, thoughtless, gay, holding when thou wouldst away. What dark glory is that which thou, spitting, mixest in thy meow? Someone even dug up a picture of him with his cat. And again, it's not even his cat. 
The other poem he wrote to the critter does start to go in a bit of a different direction, and you can definitely tell that he was itching to get himself to darker vistas. You'll even see this one called Egyptian Christmas sometimes, but it was really just a little Felis again. Hardy Sphinx whose amber eyes hold the secrets of the skies, as thou ripples in thy grace round the chairs and chimney place. Scorn on thy partition face, rise not harsh nor use thy claws, on the hand that gives applause. Good will only thou abide, in these lines a Christmas tide. Haughty Sphinx indeed. I like that the whole poem is basically asking the cat not to scratch him. I can identify with that. Cat was probably a harsh critic anyway. So, it's funny to hear Lovecraft waxing sentimental about Christmas, but if you've paid any attention at all, it's something that other people already caught on to. There's Cthulhu Christmas stuff all over now, so much that I actually wondered if doing this was already kind of old hat. I mean, there are Cthulhu ugly sweaters, Cthulhu Christmas cards, Cthulhu wreaths, you name it. You may have even seen that weird turkey stuffed with an octopus or something that was making the rounds a couple years ago. But why is it funny to mix Lovecraft with Christmas? Is it because Christmas is all about finding joy in a cold time of the year when we're supposed to remember what's really important? And Lovecraft was all about going insane because the universe is far more complex than you can imagine, and it doesn't care a whit about human beings. Yeah, I guess that's kind of funny. But you have to admit that Christmas has always been a bit edgy. You got Krampus running around smacking kids with sticks. There's that weird old man breaking into your house and rifling through your socks. And even if you're Christian, then you've got God saying, Hey, I'm giving you my son, and he's going to be mortal like you losers. Then he's born into unsanitary squalor and poverty and circumstances that aren't exactly ripe for his, I guess, stepdad to hang around and keep the family unit whole. You know, Christmas already has its fair share of madness. Maybe that's why I don't think Lovecraft and Christmas are really all that strange a combination. He didn't either. He even set some of his first forays into the larger Cthulhu mythos at Christmas, or <clears throat> Yuletide is the word he prefers. Like this nice little ballad called Festival. All it needs are some jingle bells. There is snow on the ground, and the valleys are cold, and a midnight profound blackly squats o'er the wold. But a light on the hilltops, half seen, hints of feastings unhallowed and old. There is death in the clouds, there is fear in the night, for the dead in their shrouds hail the sun's turning flight, and chant wild in the woods as they dance round a yule altar, fungus and white. To no gale of earth's kind sways the forest of oak, where the sick boughs, entwined by mad mistletoes, choke. For these powers are the powers of the dark, from the graves of the lost druid folk. And mayst thou to such deeds be an abbot and a priest, singing cannibal greeds at each devil-wrought feast, and to all the incredulous world, showing dimly the sign of the beast. That's like Christmas dinner in the Upside Down. I love that midnight is squatting on the ground. The dead are cheering for the sun running away while they dance around their Yule altar fungus and white. You've got mad mistletoe and cannibal greed, and the thing ends with him telling you, the reader, you, that you need to come be a priest or abbot at this festival like it's your destiny. You belong in this insanity. Merry Christmas. Pretty hardcore. We need a palate cleanser. Once more the ancient feast returns, and the bright hearth domestic burns. With Yuletide's added blaze, so too may all your joys increase midst floods of memory, love, and peace, and dreams of halcyon days.
Yeah, I don't know, Howard. I'm still itchy from those cannibal ghouls at the office Christmas party you threw. I get the feeling that when you talk about Christmas dinner, you aren't thinking turkey and dressing. I mean, here's one last poem about Santa, and it sounds nice and sweet, but when you really think about it, you can tell that Lovecraft saw Nick in a pretty scary way. May good Saint Nick, like as a bird of night, bring thee rich blessings in his annual flight. Long by thy chimney rest his ponderous pack, and leave with lessened weight upon his back. So yeah, it's hoping that Santa leaves you a present, but look how he says it. He's like a bird of night. Some nocturnal hunting creature. An owl, maybe, or a raven, I don't know. Either way, this is no innocent songbird, but Santa is a hidden creature who avoids the light. Nice. Then he's going to rest his ponderous pack, this huge burden he has to bear while flying over creation. He's going to rest it by your chimney for a long, long time. Santa's just going to kind of loiter at your place for a while, I guess. But sleep well. And when he finally leaves, that ponderous pack is lighter because he left you a present. But seriously, that's like saying that Santa's gifts are his burden. Like a punishment or something. Very Jacob Marley-ish. Like this isn't an errand he wants to run at all. I mean, when you really think about it, nothing in that poem is happy. I feel sorry for Nick. I feel sorry for myself having to stay in bed while this exhausted creature is like wasting time just trying to catch his breath. It's awful. But hey, that's a Lovecraft Christmas. Like he always maintained, when you know what's really going on in the universe, you'll want to get out of it as soon as possible. Festival indeed. Actually, though, we're going to hang out just a bit longer. I was going to give everyone a treat and read you the one Lovecraft story set at Christmas time, but all the folk who like this weird Christmas thing are going to do it for you instead. So hang tight. And before we do it, I'd like to thank everyone who helped with this episode. First, to my friend Lisa, who read most of the doggerel, and Chris, who read the festival. Chris, by the way, is an honest-to-God poet and philosopher. Yes, there really are such things. And you can buy his book of poetry at Amazon. Links are on my site, too. And thanks to all the folk who volunteered to read for this. Nicole B. Kelly, or Twin Poetry, on Tumblr. Brian Whittington. Elliot Bitter One Stuff on Tumblr. Marika. Hula Girl Porn on Tumblr. Not making that title up. The Tiger on Tumblr. Psychopathic Pacifist on Tumblr. And Miss Baconalia on Twitter. The story you're about to hear wouldn't be half as good without them, and it's much, much more fun to share the weirdness. So settle in, folk, and enjoy that good old Victorian Christmas tradition of listening to a scary story. Dickens ended with a happy twist. I doubt we'll get quite there, though. Merry Cthulhu! Here's The Festival by H.P. Lovecraft. I was far from home, and the spell of the eastern sea was upon me. In the twilight I heard it pounding on the rocks, and I knew it lay just over the hill where the twisting willows writhed against the clearing sky and the first stars of evening. And because my fathers had called me to the old town beyond, I pushed on through the shallow, new-fallen snow, along the road that soared lonely up to where Aldebaran twinkled among the trees, on toward the very ancient town I had never seen but often dreamed of. It was the Yuletide that men call Christmas, though they know in their hearts it is older than Bethlehem and Babylon, older than Memphis and mankind. It was the Yuletide, and I had come at last to the ancient sea town where my people had dwelt and kept festival in the elder time when festival was forbidden, where also they had commanded their sons to keep festival once every century, that the memory of primal secrets might not be forgotten. Mine were an old people, and were old even when this land was settled three hundred years before, and they were strange because they had come as dark furtive folk 
from opiate southern gardens of orchids and spoken another tongue before they learnt the tongue of the blue-eyed fishers. And now they were scattered, and shared only the rituals of mysteries that none living could understand. I was the only one who came back that night to the old fishing town as legend bade, for only the poor and the lonely remember. Then, beyond the hill's crest, I saw Kingsport, outspread frostily in the gloaming, snowy Kingsport, with its ancient veins and steeples, ridgepoles and chimney pots, wharves and small bridges, willow trees and graveyards, endless labyrinths of steep, narrow, crooked streets and dizzy church-crowned central peak that time durst not touch, ceaseless mazes of colonial houses piled and scattered at all angles and levels like a child's disordered blocks, antiquity hovering on gray wings over winter-whitened gables and gambrel roofs, fanlights and small-paned windows one by one gleaming out in the cold dusk to join Orion and the archaic stars, and against the rotting wharves the sea pounded, the secretive, immemorial sea out of which the people had come in the elder time. Beside the road at its crest, a still higher summit rose, bleak and windswept, and I saw that it was a burying ground where black gravestones stuck ghoulishly through the snow like decayed fingernails of a gigantic corpse. The printless road was very lonely, and sometimes I thought I heard a distant horrible creaking as of a giblet in the wind. They had hanged four kinsmen of mine for witchcraft in 1692, but I did not know just where. As the road wound down to the seaward slope, I listened for the merry sounds of a village at evening, but did not hear them. Then I thought of the season, and felt that these old Puritan folk might well have Christmas customs strange to me, and full of silent hearthside prayer. So after that I did not listen for merriment or look for wayfarers, but kept on down past the hush-lighted farmhouses and shadowy stone walls where the signs of ancient shops and sea taverns creaked in the salt breeze, and the grotesque knockers of a pillared doorways glistened along deserted, unpaved lanes in the little, curtained windows. I had seen maps of the town, and knew where to find the home of my people. It was told that I should be known and welcomed, for village legend lives long, so I hastened through the back street to Circle Court and across the fresh snow on the one full flagstone pavement in the town, to where Green Lane leads off behind the market house. The old map still held good, and I had no trouble. Though at Arkham they must have lied when they said they trolleys ran at this place, since I saw not a wire ahead. Snow would have hid the rails in any case. I was glad I had chosen to walk, for the white village had seemed very beautiful from the hill, and now I was eager to knock at the door of my people the seventh house on the left and green lane, with an ancient peaked roof and a jutting second story, all built before 1650. There were lights inside the house when I came upon it, and I saw from the diamond window panes that it must have been kept very close to its antique state. The upper part overhung the narrow, grass-grown street and nearly met the overhanging part of the house opposite, so that I was almost in a tunnel, with the low stone doorstep wholly free from snow. There was no sidewalk, but many houses had high doors reached by double flights of steps with iron railings. It was an odd scene, and because I was strange to New England, I had never known it like before. Though it pleased me, 
I would have relished it better if there had been footprints in the snow and people in the streets and a few windows without drawn curtains. When I sounded the archaic iron knocker, I was half afraid. Some fear had been gathering in me, perhaps because of the strangeness of my heritage and the bleakness of the evening and the queerness of the silence in that aged town of curious customs. And when my knock was answered, I was fully afraid, because I had not heard any footsteps before the door creaked open. But I was not afraid long, for the gowned, slippered old man in the doorway had a bland face that reassured me, and though he made signs that he was dumb, he wrote a quaint and ancient welcome with the stylus and wax tablet he carried. He beckoned me into a low, candle-lit room with massive exposed rafters and a dark, stiff, sparse furniture of the 17th century. The past was vivid there, for not an attribute was missing. There was a cavernous fireplace and a spinning wheel at which a bent old woman in loose wrapper and deep poke bonnet sat back toward me, silently spinning despite the festive season. An indefinite dampness seemed upon the place, and I marveled that no fire should be blazing. The high back settle faced the row of curtain windows at the left and seemed to be occupied, though I was not sure. I did not like everything about what I saw and felt again the fear I had had. The fear grew stronger from what had before lessened it, and the more I looked at the old man's bland face, the more its very blandness terrified me. The eyes never moved, and the skin was too like wax. Finally, I was sure it was not a face at all, but a fiendishly cunning mask. But the flabby hands, curiously gloved, wrote genially on the tablet, and told me I must wait a while before I could be led to the place of festival. Pointing to a chair, table, and pile of books, the old man now left the room, and when I sat down to read, I saw that the books were hoary and moldy, and that they included old Morister's Wild Marvels of Science, and the terrible Seducimus Triumphatus of Joseph Glanville, published in 1681, the shocking Demonolatreia of Regimus, published in 1595 at Lyons, and worst of all, the unmentionable Necromicon of the mad Arab Abdullah Hirazed in Olius Vermius's forbidden Latin translation, a book which I had never seen, but of which I had heard monstrous things whispered. No one spoke to me, but I could hear the creaking of the signs in the wind outside and the whir of the wheel as the bonneted old woman continued her silent spinning, spinning. I thought the room and the books and the people very morbid and disquieting, but because an old tradition of my father's had summoned me to strange feastings, I resolved to expect queer things. So I tried to read and soon became tremblingly absorbed by something I found in that accursed Necronomicon, a thought and a legend too hideous for sanity or consciousness. But I disliked it when I fancied I'd heard the closing of one of the windows that the settle faced, as if it had been stealthily opened. It has seemed to follow a whirring that was not of the old woman's spinning wheel. This was not much, though, for the old woman was spinning very hard, and the aged clock had been striking. After that, I lost the feeling that there were persons on the settle, and was reading intently and shudderingly when the old man came back booted and dressed in a loose antique costume, and sat down on that very bench, so that I could not see him. It was certainly nervous waiting, and the blasphemous book in my hands made it doubly so. When eleven struck, however, the old man stood up, glided to a massive carved chest in the corner, and got two hooded cloaks, one of which he donned, and the other of which he draped round the old woman, who was ceasing her monotonous spinning. Then they both started for the outer door, the woman lamely creeping, and the old man, after picking up the very book I had been reading, beckoning me as he drew his hood over that unmoving face or mask. We went out into the moonless and torturous network of that incredibly ancient town, went out as the lights in the curtain windows disappeared one by one, and the dog star leering at the throng of cowled, cloaked figures that poured silently from every doorway and formed monstrous processions up this street and that, 
past the creaking signs and antediluvian gables, the thatched roofs and the diamond-paned windows, threading precipitous lanes where decaying houses overlapped and crumbled together, gliding across open courts and churchyards where the bobbing lanthorns made eldritch drunken constellations. Amid these hushed throngs I followed my voiceless guides, jostled by elbows that seemed preternaturally soft, and pressed by chests and stomachs that seemed abnormally pulpy, but seeing never a face and hearing never a word. Up, 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 the eerie column slithered, and I saw that all the travelers were converging as they flowed near a sort of focus of crazy alleys at the top of a high hill in the center of the town, where perched a great white church. I had seen it from the road's crest when I looked at Kingsport in the new dusk, and it had made me shiver, because Aldebaran had seemed to balance itself a moment on that ghostly spire. There was an open space around the church, partly a churchyard with spectral shafts, and partly a paved square swept nearly bare of the snow by the wind, lined with unwholesomely archaic houses having peaked roofs and overhanging gables. Death fires danced over the tombs, revealing gruesome vistas, though queerly failing to cast any shadows. Past the churchyard, where there were no houses, I could see over the hill's summit and watch the glimmer of stars on the harbor, though the town was invisible in the dark. Only once in a while a lantern bobbed horribly through the serpentine alleys, on its way to overtake the throng that was now slipping speechlessly into the church. I waited till the crowds had oozed into the black doorway until all of the stragglers had followed. The old man was pulling at my sleeve, but I was determined to be the last. Then I finally went, the sinister man and the old spinning woman before me, crossing the threshold into that swarming temple of unknown darkness. I turned once to look at the outside worlds, the churchyard phosphorescence cast a sickly glow on the hilltop pavement, and as I did so I shuddered, for though the wind had not left much snow, a few patches yet did remain on the path near the door, and in that fleeting backward look it seemed to my troubled eyes that they wore no marks of passing feet, not even my own. The church was scarce lighted by all the lanthorns that had entered it, for most of the throng had already vanished. They had streamed up the aisle between the high white pews to the trap door of the vaults, which yawned loathsomely open just before the pulpit, and were now squirming noiselessly in. I followed dumbly down the foot-worn steps and into the dank, suffocating crypt. The tale of that sinuous line of night marchers seemed very horrible, and as I saw them wriggling into the venerable tomb, they seemed more horrible still. Then I noticed that the tomb's floor had an aperture, down which the throng was sliding, and in a moment we were all descending an ominous staircase of rough-hewn stone, a narrow spiral staircase, damp and peculiarly odorous, that wound endlessly down into the bowels of the hill, past monotonous walls of dripping stone blocks and crumbling mortar. It was a silent, shocking descent, and I observed after a horrible interval that the walls and steps were changing in nature, as if chiseled out of solid rock. What mainly troubled me was that the myriad footfalls made no sound and set up no echoes. After more aeons of descent, I saw some side passages or burrows leading from unknown recesses of blackness to this shaft of nighted mystery. Soon they became excessively numerous, like impious catacombs of nameless menace, and their pungent odor of decay grew quite unbearable. 
I knew we must have passed down through the mountain and beneath the earth of Kingsport itself, and I shivered that a town should be so aged and maggoty with subterranean evil. Then I saw the lurid shimmering of pale light and heard the insidious lapping of sunless waters. Again I shivered, for I did not like the things the night had brought, and wished bitterly that no forefather had summoned me to this primal rite. As the steps in the passage grew broader, I heard another sound, the thin whining mockery of a feeble flute. And suddenly, there spread out before me the boundless vista of an inner world, a vast fungous shore, litten by a belching column of sick greenish flame, and washed by a wide, oily river that flowed from abysses frightful and unsuspected to join the blackest gulfs of immemorial ocean. Fainting and gasping, I looked at that unhallowed Erebus of titan toadstools, leprous fire, and slimy water, and saw the cloaked throngs forming a semicircle around the blazing pillar. It was the Yule Rite, older than man and fated to survive him, the primal rite of the solstice and of spring's promise beyond the snows, the rite of fire and evergreen, light and music, and in the Stygian grotto I saw them do the rite, and adore the sick pillar of flame, and throw into the water handfuls gouged out of the viscous vegetation which glittered green in the chlorotic glare. I saw this, and I saw something amorphously squatted far away from the light, piping noisomely on a flute, and as the thing piped, I thought I heard noxious muffled flutterings in the fetid darkness where I could not see. But what frightened me most was that flaming column, spouting volcanically from depths profound and inconceivable, casting no shadow as healthy flame should, and coating the nitrous stone above with a nasty, venomous verdigris. For in all that seething combustion no warmth lay, but only the clamminess of death and corruption. The man who had brought me now squirmed to a point directly beside the hideous flame, and made stiff ceremonial motions to the semicircle he faced. At certain stages of the ritual they did groveling obeisance, especially when he held above his head that abhorrent necronomicon he had taken with him, and I shared all the obeisances, because I had been summoned to this festival by the writings of my forefathers. Then the old man made a signal to the half-seen flute player in the darkness, which played thereupon changed its feeble drone to a scarce louder drone in another key, precipitating as it did so a horror unthinkable and unexpected. At this horror I sank nearly to the lichened earth, transfixed with a dread not of this nor any world, but only of the mad space between the stars." Out of the unimaginable blackness beyond the gangrenous glare of that cold flame, out of the Tartarian leagues through which that oily river rolled, uncanny, unheard, and unsuspected, there flopped rhythmically a horde of tame, trained, hybrid things that no sound eye could ever wholly grasp or sound brain ever wholly remember. They were not altogether crows, nor moles, nor buzzards, nor ants, nor vampire bats, nor decomposed human beings, but something I cannot and must not recall. They flopped limply along half of their webbed feet and half of their membranous wings, and as they reached the throng of celebrants, the cowled figure seized and mounted them, 
and rode off one by one along the reaches of that unlighted river into pits and galleries of panic where poison springs feed frightful and undiscoverable cataracts. The old spinning women had gone with the throng, and the old man remained only because I had refused when he motioned me to seize an animal and ride like the rest. I saw when I staggered to my feet that the amorphous flute player had rolled out of sight, but that two of the beasts were patiently standing by. As I hung back, the old man produced his stylus and tablet, and wrote that he was the true deputy of my fathers who had founded the Yule worship in this ancient place, that it had been decreed I should come back, and that the most secret mysteries were yet to be performed. He wrote this in a very ancient hand, and when I still hesitated, he pulled from his loose robe a seal ring and a watch, both with my family arms, to prove that he was what he said. But it was a hideous proof, because I knew from old papers that that watch had been buried with my great-great-great-great-grandfather in 1698. Presently the old man drew back his hood and pointed to the family resemblance in his face. But I only shuddered, because I was sure that the face was merely a devilish waxen mask. The flopping animals were now scratching restlessly at the lichens, and I saw that the old man was nearly as restless himself. When one of the things began to waddle and edge away, he turned quickly to stop it, so that the suddenness of his motion dislodged the waxen mass from what should have been his head. And then, because that nightmare's position barred me from the stone staircase down which we had come, I flung myself into the oily underground river that bubbled somewhere into the caves of the sea, flung myself into that putrescent juice of earth's inner horrors before the madness of my screams could bring down upon me all the charnel legions these pest gulfs might conceal. At the hospital, they told me I had been found half-frozen in Kingsport Harbor at dawn, clinging to the drifting spar that accident sent to save me. They told me I had taken the wrong fork of the hill road the night before and fallen over the cliffs at Orange Point, a thing they deduced from the prints found in the snow. There was nothing I could say, because everything was wrong. Everything was wrong, with the broad windows showing a sea of roofs in which only about one in five was ancient, and the sound of trolleys and motors in the streets below. They insisted that this was Kingsport, and I could not deny it. When I went delirious at hearing that the hospital stood near the old churchyard on Central Hill, they sent me to St. Mary's Hospital in Arkham, where I could have better care. I liked it there, for the doctors were broad-minded, and even lent me their influence in obtaining the carefully sheltered copy of Alhazred's objectional Necronomicon from the library of Miskatonic University. They said something about a psychosis, and agreed I had better get any harassing obsessions off my mind. So I read again that hideous chapter and shuddered doubly because it was indeed not new to me. I had seen it before, let footprints tell what they might, and where it was I had seen it were best forgotten. There was no one in waking hours who could remind me of it, but my dreams are filled with terror because of phrases I dare not quote. I dare quote only one of paragraph, put into such English as I can make from the awkward low Latin. The nethermost caverns, wrote the mad Arab, are not for the fathoming of eyes that see, 
for their marvels are strange and terrific. Cursed the ground where dead thoughts live new and oddly bodied, and evil the mind that is held by no head. Wisely did even Chuckabow say that happy is the tomb where no wizard hath lain, and happy the town at night whose wizards are all ashes. For it is of old rumor that the soul of the devil bought he's not from his charnel clay, but fats and instructs the very worm that gnaws, till out of corruption horrid life springs, and the dull scavengers of earth wax crafty to vex it and swell monstrous to plague it. Great holes secretly are digged where earth's pores ought to suffice, and things have learnt to walk that ought to crawl. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also email me at weirdxmas at gmail.com with ideas for shows or comments. And follow me on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look up Weird Christmas. And of course, there's always weirdchristmas.com. That carol at the beginning is actually from the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, and you can find all their songs on YouTube or buy the actual CDs. Until next time, here's hoping Santa doesn't stuff you in his bulging, sweaty sack. Ah, crap, I didn't put the St. John one in there. That's boring anyway. Christmas greetings to Reinhardt Kleiner. St. John whose art sublimely shines in liquid odes and melting lines, let Theobald his regard express in verse of lesser loveliness, as now in regal state appear the festive hours of Yuletide cheer. My strongest wish is that you may feel every blessing of the day.